welcome back to your brain uncovered today on this bite-sized episode i'll be discussing a telltale brain this is a book um written by a very prominent cognitive neuroscientist who went on a quest to you know discover what makes us human so ramachandran has been practicing as a neurologist for over two decades now but lately he's been specializing in you know um have you ever heard of the amputated uh, limb in which you know a sensation seems to arrive from amputated body parts um yeah he's he's studying that uh, currently and even synesthesia in which sounds you know may seem to have taste and letters may have colors um it's quite an interesting phenomena there may be like some other even combinations of actual and illusionary events so yeah these and other neurological oddities uh did serve as a really good you know jumping off point for the book's examination of the human brain and an examination of how it evolved and what mechanisms might differentiate us from lower animals and i really liked you know i i, I really respect his writing style i mean he was addressing the general audience as well as you know neuroscience specialists and he attempted to go beyond what is known and he speculated um about what might be so yeah he argues that if every scientist were a brush clearing never stray beyond established fact type science would advance at a snail's pace and i highly agree i mean in an era in which you know shrinking availability of research funding um, is evident uh, you know there's is this is just causing greater and greater conservatism so yeah, he did he did take a very open-minded approach which provided a very refreshing contrast to be honest. So, yeah. Now the book opens up with the challenge of understanding what is it about our 3-pound massive jelly that affords us, you know, our dazzling era uh, era of cognitive abilities. So, you know the accelerating pace of advancement over the last maybe a few thousand years um seems to require an explanation at least you know one way or another now obviously during this period we have perfected cultural transmission of information so uh that individuals you know can benefit from the hard-earned knowledge of others now the, the question can ask itself i mean what is it about our brains that allow us to do this allow that to happen so the author points to two attributes of the brain as very notable contribute contributors so the first one is neural connections so yeah they they in fact don't just go where they're supposed to go so going back to the phantom limb syndrome and synesthesia as they demonstrate some of the connections in the brain are just in the wrong place so yeah so the limb region of the somat like the somatosensory cortex also gets a whisper of input from the face a pathway only revealed when the limb is missing while with synesthesia the experience of you know perceptual crosstalk between real stimuli and illusionary one is just unbordered so yeah seemingly unrelated sensations are just being experienced at the same time so the author suggests that you know um such connections reveal a propensity for forging ties between you know the content of different kinds um which can which can kind of end you know indicate how do i say this you know like anatomical flexibility and um maybe like on an evolutionary and perhaps an individual time scale um this kind of supports the brain in performing new tasks now if the connections are already there evolution doesn't really have to you know build a whole new infrastructure which comes in handy now the second major contributor to the evolution of human cognition other than that neural connections don't always go where they're supposed to go is that he argues that they are the specialized neurons also known as neuron you know mirror neurons uh, going back to a levels here <laughs> so yeah um these neurons were first de- 
discovered in the ventral premotor cortex in monkeys. They were discovered back in 1992. Um, this is a very random fact, but yeah, by an Italian researcher. And these um, mirror neurons show increased activity both when the monkey performs an action and when it watches someone else perform that same action. Now, the writer suggests that by lumping observation uh, and performance, mirror neurons might provide us, you know, the basis for empathy theory of mind and the ability to predict to predict like the actions and motivations of others which are vital elements of you know us humans and for our social structure now what about the last few chapters well the book kind of shifts focus to explore you know the neuroscience of art which is beautiful so it proposes the question of you know why do we like to look at what we look at uh, so yeah pretty much have you ever wondered i mean um the author himself proposes that we find um, what we find pleasing follows some rules, similar to, you know, the gestalt grouping principles. Uh, our visual systems like to detect objects, to see contrast, to solve peekaboo problems, as I like to call it, you know, etc. So, yeah, pretty much. All these examples are just things of how um, we kind of seek patterns. We're always seeking patterns, whether it's in our behavior, in our surrounding and like the way we detect stuff using using our senses the more familiar the thing is more the more the more patterns we collect the better it's easier for us so yeah now one of the most intriguing ideas in this section is that um our aesthetic preferences might be driven by ideals re you know representing extreme forms of real world stimuli now what do i mean by that so um let me give you an example. So back in like in the 1940s, um, there was a Dutch ethologist. His name was Nico. Um, he found that, you know, he found the representation of the bill pretty much. So the writer kind of, um, he argued that a similar tendency could explain our enjoyment of, um, you know, the exaggerated artistic forms. Uh, this idea suggests a path forward for investigating maybe uh, the neural basis of our aesthetic preferences. Now, how cool would that be? <laughs> kind of figure why we, you know, like things the way they are and why we don't. That, I mean, that's always nice. And, um, like, currently, um, this has been an unsolved problem. Uh, we don't have, we, no one knows the neural basis of, you know, um, aesthetic preferences, especially not individual pathways. So I hope that can be maybe further researched. Um, so, yeah. Now, not surprisingly, <laughs> um, I found, like, some arguments in the book had better foundations than others. I mean, there was a section in the book about autism, which I found quite controversial. Um, yeah, I, I just, yeah, like some some parts of the book were heavy handedly um, very well researched, while the, the section about autism was, I don't know, have a go, read it yourself. <laughs> but yeah, but in the end, the most important con contribution of this uh, creative book lies not just in the you know, particular ideas that he offered, but in the ideas that he provoked and me and all other readers. I mean, um, looking at things in a new way, you know, it might lead us to unpaint a few corners and perhaps eventually, you know, to clear brush in some new domains of neuroscience, which I'm really looking forward to, you know. Um, I kind of discussed maybe uh, investigating the neural, neural basis of um, spirituality in the past, and now we're talking about the, like, maybe looking at the neural underpinnings of our aesthetic preferences. These are all so interesting. Um, so yeah, I mean, 
It's quite a book. I'd give it maybe a 9 out of a 10. Yeah? Um, I'm leaving you um, some space to, you know, give me your own opinion about it. Anyways, <laughs> thank you thank you for listening to this episode. Um, and per usual, if you want a copy of the book, feel free to reach out to me. And I'll be most gladly to lend you a copy. Uh, so yeah, anyways, I'll talk to you soon. Bye!